Good morning, church. It is good to be with you. If you would take your Bibles and open them to the book of Exodus, specifically Exodus chapter 2, although we will be looking at Exodus chapter 1 all the way to Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. And while you are turning there, we are in the book of Exodus because today we are beginning a series that will span over several weeks entitled Exodus, Our Response to the Intentional Love of God. So let me explain. Some of us have become accustomed to seeing things that maybe other people cannot see. Some of us love fashion, and you notice clothing and shoes. When you go out and you see it in a room, that's what you first notice on almost everyone, what they're wearing or what shoes they might have on. You've learned to see things that other people don't see because you spend time with those or you love them. Others of us have become hypersensitive when it comes to the virus. And so some of us have kind of a virus alert. When you go out in public, all of a sudden you hear someone sneeze or cough. It could just be really benign, but all of a sudden we think virus. Some who are interested in getting married, you have grown accustomed to be able to spot if someone is married or single by looking at a ring on a finger. Others of us love cars and we think about makes and models. And when we're driving down the road, Many are oblivious, but those who love cars, you are looking at, oh, there's that car, there's this car, there's this car. Some of us, it's that way with sports teams. For those of you who could care less about sports, you wonder, how does that person always find something that has to do with this team, the Steelers or the Panthers or whatever? And others of us, it's music. You can hear your favorite artist or a certain type of song or genre and you might say, did you hear that song? And others would be just totally oblivious, didn't hear it at all. Why is this? Why are we able to spot certain things that other people cannot spot? In part, it's because we spent time with these things. We love these things. We've trained our eyes or our ears to begin to identify and spot these things. And as I was praying and processing about where we are in our world, and talking it over with our elders, I thought that this season we needed to get good at spotting the work of God. We need to grow in seeing God at work and then constantly asking ourselves this question. In light of God's work in our life and in the world, how should we respond? So it's seeing God's work and then asking ourselves, how should we respond as an individual or as a church? My burden is that during this COVID season, God is at work in millions of ways. Many times we can walk around with our spiritual eyes closed, not looking for him or seeing him at work. My prayer is that through this book of Exodus, through the first 18 chapters is where we will be spending our time. My prayer is that the word of God would open to us God's gracious work. And that God would, in some senses, pull back the curtain, as it were, and train our eyes to spot his grace at work, just like we would our favorite artist, team, or item of clothing. And then that we would be humble, humble to ask God, how should we respond? And to be at the ready to respond. So in this moment, we're asking right now, and I pray that you would do so that God would quiet our hearts. He would remove the walls of pride and he would give us eyes, eyes to see 
his intentional love, his work in our lives and the lives of those around us. And he would grant us faith to respond in love. So the series is entitled Exodus, our response to the intentional love of God. And we'll basically ask two questions with every sermon. That is, where do we see God at work in the text? And how will we respond to that work? So this week, for example, we're asking, is God at work? Yes, God is fighting for us. And how should we respond? We should respond with vulnerable hearts. So the title of today is Vulnerable Hearts, God Fights for Us. The work of God, God fights for us. And what is our response? That God would give us vulnerable hearts. So as we look at how God is fighting for his people today, and we are asking for vulnerable hearts, he gives us four truths. Four truths. One, God loves the vulnerable. Two, God's fight is verbal. His fight for us is verbal. Three, our response is to wait with vulnerable hearts. And four, God fights for us by giving us himself. So although the sermon will cover one, chapter 1 to, um, to chapter 3, verse 8, let's read only chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, and then I'll pray and we'll dive right in. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25 say this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would be merciful to us now. Show us how you were fighting for the people of Israel, how you are fighting for us now. And give us humble hearts that wait for you, and respond with a softness and a vulnerability that says wherever you lead, we're ready to go. Please, Father, show us your son, Jesus, and fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The first point is this. God fights for the vulnerable. So let's look at Exodus chapter 1 and let's try to get where we are in the lay of the scriptures and in the life of the people of Israel. Exodus follows the book of Genesis, which ends with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people to the land of Egypt to escape a famine that was in their land. Now, Jacob has 12 sons. His 11th son, Joseph, was sovereignly and graciously exalted to second in command in Egypt. And he had favor with Pharaoh such that when the famine came in the land of his family and they came, he ended up asking Pharaoh and Pharaoh granted passage for Joseph's family into the land of Egypt and they settled in the land of Goshen. Then over time, Jacob dies. And what we see at the beginning of Exodus is that Joseph dies with the rest of his brothers and all that generation, which is what Exodus chapter 1 verse 6 says. Then in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7, we read this, But the people of Israel were fruitful 
and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. And what you hear there are echoes of Genesis chapter 1, where God gave his blessing and his commission to the people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. You see that happening, but now there's a turn. A turn in the narrative in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, and it says, And there rose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And now the story turns. This new king, who will also be called Pharaoh in these uh, chapters of Scripture, we see that he sees Israel not as a blessing, but as a threat. He feared what was now almost over one million people of Israel that they might partner up with some of the enemies of Egypt and they might attack the Egyptians and crush them and push them out. So now this Pharaoh, this king, enslaves the people of Israel. Sadly, but remarkably, this racial targeting is just as God said it would be in Genesis 15. He told Abraham this was going to happen. Listen to these words. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners or immigrants in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Genesis 15, 13, and 14. And so according to this passage, it was the vulnerable, sojourning people of Israel who are now going to spend 400 years, 430 years in Egypt, afflicted for at least 400 of them, finding themselves as objects of some of the most cruelest injustices among humanity, racially based human enslavement. As immigrants, sojourners, they're kind of three times vulnerable. The sojourning immigrant racial oppression, and slavery. And this is why the African-American spirituals are filled with songs about the Exodus, songs about longing for the promised land and escaping because they were immigrants in a foreign land, objects of racially based slavery. And so many of these songs longing for a time when they can be set free. Well, God promised Abraham that it would be his family that would serve as the vehicle through which God would rescue his people from promised affliction. But for 400 long years, there was unspeakable brutality, forced labor to build Pharaoh's cities. But remarkably, Israel is said to continue to multiply. We get glimpses throughout the chapters, the beginning chapters of Exodus as Pharaoh is described astutely by the Bible Project uh, individuals as the cruelest figure in the scriptures up to this point. Egypt has become like this new Babylon, which was the enemies of God in Genesis 11. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 15, if you're following there in chapter 1, look at verse 15. What you begin to see is that Pharaoh is so cruel that he asks the Hebrew midwives to kill all of the little baby boys who are born after they come out of the womb. And that command was followed up when that was not as successful as the Pharaoh wanted. It was followed up with a command that every son born to Hebrews must be cast into the Nile. 
This is not just the horrific atrocities of abortion. This is infanticide. This is child killing, boy killing. And the scriptures portray that it's only in six societies that murder of innocent children is a good thing. But God turns Pharaoh's evil upside down. As one of those Hebrew boys is miraculously spared by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And he, that is Moses, who we will hear about later, is adopted into Pharaoh's family. And then a remarkable twist of irony, whenever you see something ironic, you know that God is at work. It has his fingerprints all over it. In a twist of irony, Moses becomes the man God uses to defeat the next Pharaoh's plan and to rescue God's people from the Egyptians. So now Moses grows up in Egypt for 40 years. He has all the rights and privileges and responsibilities and access of the Egyptians. He is raised as an Egyptian. But one day we are told, Exodus chapter 2, so we're through chapter 1, now we're into chapter 2, verse 11. It's also summarized as Stephen is being ready to be stoned in Acts chapter 7 this way. We begin to read that Moses at age 40, he wants to visit his Hebrew brothers and sisters. And he sees one Hebrew being wronged. And so he defends him and ends up killing an Egyptian and burying him in the sand. The next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting. And as they're fighting, he tells them to stop fighting. Can't they be at peace? And they say, who are you to judge me? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses didn't think anybody knew. And it was at that point when he knew he was in trouble. And so the scriptures tell us that now Moses is running for his life. Pharaoh finds out, tries to kill him. Moses runs for his life as an immigrant, a sojourner to the land of Midian. And he's now in exile from his hometown where he was raised in Egypt. It was while in Midian that he is there and he finds some women who are trying to give water to their flocks and some bandits who come to try to take those flock away or to try to get the water and Moses protects them and then gives water to this, to this flock and helps out this family. And so this family comes and says, thank you so much. Why don't you, we become family and you marry my daughter and the daughter's name is Zipporah. And so they're all, Moses is adopted into this family and they have their first child. His name is Gershom, which means sojourner. So interesting that Moses names his first child Sojourner. It was such an identity marker, such a marker of his journey that he is now a sojourner, an immigrant in a foreign land. And so now Moses is 40 years old. And for the next 40 years, he has left the fast and famous life of Egyptian royalty to enter 40 years of slow, no-named shepherding in Midian. This is a small window into the plight of the sojourner or the immigrant or the refugee, many times leaving unjust governments and godless situations, only hoping to find some sense of refuge or acceptance or safety. And here in the scriptures, the sojourner is, 
is introduced as a theme and something that will continue on in the scriptures is near to the heart of God. Now, while Moses lives 40 years in Midian, the people of Israel are still in slavery. And they are groaning as the burden of their slavery was still heavy. So if we hit pause here, we're at Exodus chapter 22. Ex I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 2, verse 22. And so far, the setting for Exodus is dark. The people of God have become enslaved. They are subject to the demeaning demands of a dictator for the sake of Egyptian superiority. And that dictator has sanctioned race-based slavery. And the people of Israel are treated as outsiders because they are sojourners and immigrants and they are hurting. And little children are being slaughtered or drowned through government-sanctioned child killing. This is painfully dark. And God is getting ready to judge a nation who is unjust to these vulnerable people. He will judge them for their racism, their treatment of the unborn and of the children, their treatment of immigrants, and their advocacy for and their participation in slavery. This is so serious to God that he begins to highlight these categories of the vulnerable throughout the scriptures. It's these people, especially those vulnerable among his people, where we are told that God has a keen eye of compassion and love and mercy towards them. It's the vulnerable you see God judging his own people for neglecting and not including. It's how we treat the vulnerable, the poor, the slave, the immigrant, the widow, the fatherless, the wrongly imprisoned, that are part of God's test for whether or not we really love him, according to Zechariah 7 and Matthew 25. So make no mistake about it. We don't want to be found aligning ourselves with Egypt. You want to be an advocate for the vulnerable, filled with compassionate hearts for all the vulnerable. Now here in Exodus 1 and 2, the scripture spends so much time on this horrible, dark, painful treatment of Israel for a specific reason. It's in order, at least this reason, in order to show that what is about to come upon Egypt is just. It is deserved. And the reader not only sees the pain, but feels the need for deliverance and justice. It's similar to 9-11. It didn't take much convincing of the American public that strong justice was needed for the culprits who carried out those vicious attacks on 9-11. Why was that? Why didn't we need to be convinced that justice had to be had? It was because so many of us watched the drama unfold before our eyes. Several of us knew people affected or had traveled to those cities of D.C. or New York, Pennsylvania. We didn't have to be convinced of the need for a rescue because we saw the depth of pain. We even had one member who was on the interstate and saw the plane fly into the Pentagon. These things run deep because we experienced the depth of pain and the same is here in Exodus. We see the mistreatment and the disregard for human life and therefore there is a pleading in some senses along with the people of Israel, God, when will you bring justice? When will you bring justice among these people? And that's why. Some of the most refreshing words in, script, in Scripture come in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and 25. It comes as like a driving rain in the midst of rout. 
like a bumper crop in the midst of famine, like a long hug after a season of extremely painful distance. I want you to listen to Exodus chapter 2 again, verses 23 through 25. And I want you to notice the verbs associated with God. Because our God's fight for us is verbal. See his love and look at his fight for his people. Hear the scriptures again. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This leads us to our second point, that God's fight for his people is a verbal fight. These are verbs for the vulnerable. Look at it with me. God heard their groaning. It's not that he hasn't been listening before or that he hasn't been hearing, but this hearing is a sign of the depth of God's love. He this listening and this hearing shows such love from God. Our, groan, our God hears their groaning. He is filled with compassion over their groaning. He is not indifferent to theirs and our groaning. But God also remembered his covenant. It's not that God forgot. But this is the verbal marker that he is ready to take action according to his word. Remember, his word in Genesis 15, 14 says, I will bring judgment on the nation that the Israelites serve, that is Egypt. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. He is, a, he is ready to act. He's remembering his promise, his covenant from Genesis 15 for his people. And God saw. God saw them it's not that God is just now noticing or seeing and observing their pain. He has not been aloof for 400 years, blind, covering his eyes to their pain. We don't fully know why the delay. Similarly to why, why did Jesus wait in John 11 before he went and saw his dear friend Lazarus? Instead, he waits until Lazarus dies to go. Why? It says in John 11, to show his love, to show his glory. And here, similarly, to demonstrate his love, to show off his glory, it seems so counterintuitive, but God sees them. Now, in the scriptures, God's seeing is a seeing to their deliverance. This kind of seeing by God is a seeing to something be accomplished. If someone said to me, hey, Sean, would you please set up that meeting? And I could say, yes, I will see to it that that gets done. Meaning, I will carry it out to completion. God talks this way in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, when God says, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. What does that mean? It means that God saw to it that the light that he put was good for human flourishing and for his glory. And so now, when God says he sees the people of Israel, it means he will see to it that his covenant promises will be fulfilled and his people will be delivered. And God knows. 
Similarly, this knowing is not just a knowing about, but it's like Adam and new Eve. It's a sign of intimacy. It's a depth of understanding that shows I am with you in ways that no one else will be with you. I am your God and there is none like me. I hear you. I remember you. I see you. I know you. But isn't it interesting that God decided to act and he is at work according to this scripture right here. And yet in real time, Moses didn't know it. And the Israelites in slavery didn't know it. We are let in right here into the heart of God in such a way that yet Moses nor the enslaved people of Israel even knew. And so what does this teach us? That even though they don't see that God is at work, God is still at work. And it just encourages me so much that even though you cannot perceive it, when there doesn't seem to be one sign that God is working, when the circumstances don't change and they might even get worse, God is still with us. He hears us. He knows us. He is always with us working for our good. And that is why we collide with point three. Our God is fighting for us, and his fight is filled with verbs of love. But what are we going to do with that work of God? Our response to the fighting for us work of God is to wait with vulnerable hearts. Number three, our response is to wait with vulnerable hearts. As I said in the beginning, part of where we are in this COVID season is not just needing eyes to see where God is at work, but being ready and willing to respond to the work that we see and respond to his word. So here, when we see his word telling us that God is fighting for the vulnerable and that he loves his people and that he is at work even when circumstances or feelings seem to indicate other, otherwise, we have to ask the question, how are we going to respond? And this passage seems to push us to wait on the Lord with soft, vulnerable hearts. That is, a heart that's moldable by God. Our hearts are to be ready for him to make us into who we need to be so that he will use us when he wants and how he wants. Exodus 2 verse 23 Look at it again with me. It says that the people of Israel are seen groaning and crying out for help. They are hurting. They have been waiting for over 400 years. This sense of when will deliverance come? When will deliverance come? They are crying out to God for refuge, enslaved for generations. And now the old Pharaoh has died and a new Pharaoh is coming in. And possibly maybe he is even more harsh than the previous one, but they are found groaning. And this is the pain of waiting. Now, when the Bible speaks of waiting, there is a weariness to waiting. The psalmist in Psalm 69, 3 says this, I am weary with crying out. 
My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And we see this with the people of Israel, even later on in chapters five and six. Moses and Aaron told them that God was at work and they had hope. They had hope that the Egyptians would be put away. However, when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, it only made things worse. It only made things worse. And all of the hope in the people of Israel was devastated. And it says, but they chose not to listen anymore to Moses because their broken spirit, because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. I don't know if you've been there before. You had hope and then the hope was dashed. This is some of the weariness of waiting on the Lord. What's interesting, though, is even though they were burdened and weary, they had a broken spirit, hope was lost. There was still hope because although they couldn't see it, God was at work. But we must just begin with our response is to wait, but there's a weariness to waiting. But don't we praise God? Don't we praise God that he doesn't stop delivering us just because of our short-sightedness or our loss of hope? Waiting, especially waiting in physically or emotionally trying times, is meant to bring us to the end of ourselves and to make our hearts vulnerable and soft to the Lord, pliable, ready to be molded and moved in however God would have us. When we are at the end of ourselves, we are ready to be fully led by him. And that's why in waiting, there's not only weariness, but there is a readied stillness. Here's what I mean. Okay, you go to an amusement park, you go to your favorite ride, you're so excited, and you get in line, and now there's a one-hour wait. Okay, we've all been in these lines and you're standing in the line and while you're standing in line, yes, all of us have done it. There's a sense of complaining, complaining how hot it is, complaining how slow the line's moving, etc. And then while you're waiting, you have this anticipation. It's like, oh, maybe we're close and you're around the corner only to see this whole other massive room and this whole other sense of labyrinth of, of lines and, and you're just exasperated. But while you're waiting, and the complaining is going on. There is also not only a weariness, but there's a stillness and a readiness. A stillness because you can't just push people and push people out of your way. You have to be still. You have to sit in your place. You got to stay there. But if you only stayed still, you'd never make it to the end of the line. So you have to be ready that when the line moves, you're ready to move with it. Similarly, Waiting on the Lord has a stillness to it and a readiness to it and a weariness to it. Psalm 37, 7 tells us about the stillness. It says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently before him. But Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6, teach us a little bit about the readiness of waiting. When it says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits and in his word, I hope there was this active setting your heart before the word of the Lord and receiving it. 
That was kind of a readiness. It was an action. And then he goes on, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. There's this anticipation that, yes, I'm waiting, but God will work and he will move. And when he moves, I will go. I will move. I will be on the ready. So as we see here with Israel, the waiting and suffering is just so difficult. But it is in their suffering as well as in stillness where God does his softening heart work. So the response to the work of God in and around us, even when we can't see it, is that we are to be still before him, bringing our weariness to him, but we are to be readied, active in his word, getting counsel, taking steps of faith. But we say like Moses does later on, God, if you don't go before us, we don't want to go. We only want to go where you go. Your presence is our greatest need. Lead us and guide us. And this leads us to our last point. Our last point is this. God fights for us by giving us our greatest need, that is himself. Moses is found waiting. He doesn't know really he's waiting, but he is there for 40 long years being made ready for this moment. And now we come to it in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, the story has in the background the deep groans of Exodus chapter 1 and 2. 400 years of slavery. The people of Israel are groaning in their slavery. And from their perspective and Moses' perspective, there's a deafening silence of God's work. They can't see God at work. And then we read this. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And we'll see Jethro again in Exodus chapter 18. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is also known as Mount Sinai. It's the setting of Exodus 19, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. So that's where Moses is right now, verse 2, Exodus chapter 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. The angel of the Lord is usually more than just a messenger in the Old Testament scripture. Here we see in verse 4, he is called God. It says God called him out of the bush. And he's called the Lord in verse 7. And then you see he is a flame of fire which is regularly a sign of the presence of God. We even see it in Exodus chapter 13 when God leads them by a pillar of fire. So what we have, as R.C. Sproul notes, the fire was in the bush, but the bush was not being used for fuel. The fire was independent of the bush, burning all on its own. What is this fire? It is the glory of the living God coming to Moses. And now Moses sees. God has been and God is at work. The fire that is in the bush but not consuming the bush is the glory of God. The scriptures in verse 2 go on. He, Moses, looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. God is seeing to, Exodus chapter 2, he's seeing to his deliverance. God has come to his people, and he's starting with Moses. Now, verse 3, Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush 
is not burned. Moses now is drawing closer to study this mind-blowing moment, which makes sense. But then the Lord says, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, stop right there. And he said, here I am. Moses stopped because this is no normal fire. God is saying, this is me. This is me, Moses. And you see that in verse 5. Then he said, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Ground set apart by the glory of God. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The fire in the bush is the blinding light of the glory of God. His radiance, the same radiance that came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. The torch that passed between the pieces, Genesis 15. It's the blinding light of the glory of God that came to the shepherds when Jesus was born and they were terrified, yet they rejoiced. It's the blinding light of the glory of God that came to Paul on the road to Damascus that humbled him and literally blinded him, but completely altered his life. God has visited Moses with his glory. And the only choice he has is to hide his face because the glory was so shockingly other, so holy, so brilliant, so glorious, that he was now crystal clearly aware of his unworthiness, his sinfulness and light of the glory of God. Shame hides. But what did God do in the midst of shame? He drew near. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, it's a, like an expanding of Exodus chapter 2. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Oh, dear friends, let all those verbs wash over you in this moment. God sees you. He sees your oppression. He sees your suffering. He hears your cries and he draws near to you, even though we should be covered in shame. Instead, if we trust in Jesus, we are covered by his blood. We are marked by his mercy. But here I want to end with what we need as we face suffering. What we need is we wait upon the Lord as we wait on him. And the pain sometimes seems to get worse before it gets better. What we need in this COVID season as fears still abound and as we come face to face with ourselves or our fears, we need to know that our God fights for us primarily by giving us himself. And if we have him, we have enough. God knew what Moses needed and that will become even more apparent next week in Exodus chapter 3. 
But God didn't need Moses. Moses needed God. We have to understand. I can feel at times like I really know what I need and then feel really disappointed when that's not happening. But I'm kind of like the child who longs for milk. And then the parent won't give the child milk and it just seems so unjust. But the parent knows the child is lactose intolerant. Can't handle it. It'll hurt them. The parent knows what is best. And this is what Jesus speaks to in Luke 11, verses 11 through 13. He says this, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Matthew says, we'll give good gifts to those who ask him. Luke says, we'll give him the Holy Spirit because Jesus is telling you the greatest gift you can receive is the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. That is our greatest need. And so ask, 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 plead, and our Father will not be unjust. He will not be indifferent. He will give you exactly what you need. He will not give you a stone. He will not give you a scorpion. He will give you himself. And we need his spirit because his spirit guides us, convicts us, comforts us, encourages us, reveals things to us, and opens our eyes to see the work of God in only a way that he can. So if the pleading of this entire series is, oh God, show us your work in the Bible and how we should respond to that, but also, oh God, by your Holy Spirit, give us spiritual eyes to see your work around us and then, with vulnerable, soft hearts, waiting for you to move, when we see you, help us to respond. Help us to respond. So here in Exodus, see, our God is fighting for us. And our response is soft, vulnerable hearts, ready and waiting for him to move and to shape us. But we need to allow the Exodus and this God coming to his people to sling us to Jesus because it is at the cross when God remembered his promises. Remembered his promises to humanity that he would send his son, the Messiah, to die for sinners. It was there at the cross where we see that he heard the groans of his enslaved people, enslaved by sin, that they would never escape were it not for his mercy and compassion. And so in sending his son, he brought hope. And God saw us. God saw us. He saw to it that we would be redeemed. He saw to it that there would be a way made that sinners could be right with God. And God knows. God knows for anyone who is at the end of themselves today, today is the day of salvation. God knows there's a way for you to know God and to experience the in-depth, intimate knowing of the love of God for you. It's that humble place. It's that place where you're at the end of yourself, spiritual fatigue that drives you to the cross. It's the vulnerable place that God comes to you as he did to Moses in the bush. And he's showing us his glory now. It's the glory of Calvary by saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest, rest for your souls. 
Look to Jesus. Don't hide in shame, but now confess your sin and be set free. Even if you have confessed Christ as your king, confess today the goodness of your Savior. He fights for you. He calls you to wait on him, but to trust in him. He promises he is with you. Ask and it will be given to you. Ask, 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 and he will give you his Holy Spirit. He will fill you with hope. He will give you eyes to see that he is fighting for us all throughout our days. And he will give us a soft heart to respond to him at the ready. Let's pray. God, please give us eyes to see that you are at work and give us soft, waiting, vulnerable hearts that are ready to respond as you call and lead. Father, I pray that you will help us to consider what does waiting on the Lord look like for us? And Father, would you please expose to us where our heart is hard and not soft to you? Help us to understand why and to repent and to call out to you. Father, please make our hearts soft to the things of you. May we trust you even when we can't see you at work. Would you give us eyes to see that you are at work where we have been previously blind? Would you expose and uproot our sin and help us to surrender control of our lives? Would you cause us to trust in you, to guide us in your love into the face of an unknown future? And Father, please get glory. Get glory in this season of our lives. Get glory in our hearts as deliver and redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.